You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was Add 10 Gallons? Add 10 Gallons. My first thought was, we got to put Act Chill. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome into another edition of the Ad Tank Gallons Concrete Podcast. We're back from World of Concrete. We've had a little bit of time to digest that, and we hope you guys have enjoyed the content that we put on both the podcast and our social media pages. But like I said, we're back, so let's check in with the boys. Paul, what's going on? Oh, I'm coming in hot from the home office. Uh, I got to give a shout-out, though. Joey Bell, the... Uh, World of Concrete video, like when you were with the guy with like the work boots, I mean, goodness gracious, dude, you should have your own TV show. Yeah, I'm only good at a couple things, and uh, I let Josh have all the tech and stuff at World of Concrete, but I do know about walking in shoes, so I took that one over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you talk about what you know, right? You, you let the boy go. So we, we were talking to Keen, and I mean, obviously Keen makes, you know, hiking shoes and boots they have for a long time, and they're really nice. So Joey knew more about them than I did even after I did some research. So we were like, well, heck, man, you got this one. I just held the camera. It was, it was kind of nice uh, going back and forth like that. Joey did some interviews. I did some interviews. It, uh, it worked out nice. Plus, broke it up a little bit on our social media pages so they don't always have to look at me talking to people. Yeah, it was fun. We had a pretty good diverse group of interviews, I think. We had tools. We had workwear. We had ASA, you know, the organization. We had tech. A little bit of everything this time. Yeah, for sure. And I'd I'd say the show had a little bit of everything, right? Like even in our wrap-up, we never really said, well, this hall was all this. I mean, the the North Hall was all tech, but the tech had such a wide range of of topics and, you know, what they were actually promoting to the industry. It didn't feel didn't feel like there was a whole lot of anything there, really. That you know, that was kind of the the theme of the entire show this year at World of Concrete. But we're back, and uh, I guess we have Con Ag in about six weeks. So we'll go out there and do a little bit of the same uh, same format, same flavor. But uh, the show will be a lot a lot different, in my opinion. Yeah, things going to be crazy. Uh, they are projecting more than 65,000 people to attend this year. I saw that. That's wild. 
2.7 million square feet of exhibit space. And there's no way you could literally, I mean, there's literally no way you could see everything when there's that much exhibit space. So uh, we're going to do like everybody else and target certain people, certain friends and colleagues and acquaintances, and hopefully meet some new people while we're out there. Yeah, and I know Paul was a little salty about not going to World of Concrete. He had, he had mentioned as such. Um, so so you get to go out to uh, Con Ag with us, and, and that's good because we could use the extra person. And if we have some corporate brass coming out there to see what we're up to, maybe we can put them to work as well. Yeah, I think we've got, like, at least three people that are coming to support you guys this time. Uh, you did such a good job at World of Concrete. It got noticed. Uh, so you're going to have a little bit of help. It was a lot. You guys, oh, yeah. I mean, we're busy from sunup to sundown, and we appreciate that effort. But I also want to give a shout-out to all our new listeners, uh, all our new subscribers that were coming in. Just to let everybody know, January of 2023 was the greatest month uh, in podcast downloads uh, for the history of this show. Uh, when you look at uh, subscriber count and you're estimating that, it looks like it's gro- grown by about 30%. Uh, just in the month of January. So we welcome in all the new listeners. Thank you guys for joining us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's nice to go out there and get a little exposure, but once you get that exposure, you got to give the people what they want. So we'll keep coming to you with plenty of content to keep you busy. What the people want is to make sure that I'm finding new and creative ways to irritate Josh. So he goes on some kind of rant about how he doesn't like the government. That's the usual theme. That's the usual theme of of most most episodes, especially this section where we talk about uh, current events and things that are going on within the industry. And sticking with the world of concrete theme, do you guys remember that giant blue pane glass uh, hotel and convention structure that was built adjacent to the convention hall that seemed to be like halfway partially completed for the last decade? <laughs> it was, yeah, half the projects I feel like I ever see, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, th- this one in particular, it caught everybody's eye because, I mean, it's this giant hotel, casino, uh, luxury resort, but, you know, half the windows were broken out. It was unfinished. Well, in Construction Dive today, and shout out to Construction Dive, by the way, if you guys like industry news, and obviously you do because you're tuned into this podcast, uh, Construction Dive is my go-to, and this is not an ad. They are my go-to source for just overall industry news. They do a phenomenal job. But they came out with a 2023 Outlook section of their website. And in that Outlook section, they listed seven projects to watch in 2023, one of which was this um, Fountain Blue and the way they spell it. uh, I presume it's supposed to be pronounced Fontaine Blue. uh, But I'm going to pronounce it Fountain Blue. Yeah, get that French stuff out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a $3.7 billion project. Uh, A Florida-based development firm finally, um, okay, I'm reading here, a Florida-based development firm with the help of Coke Industries uh, secured a $2.2 billion construction loan to complete the project. It'll be completed in 2024, and it is set to stretch across a total of a 25-acre property 9 million square feet on the north end of the Las Vegas Strip. And like I said, it's uh, adjacent to the convention center. It'll house 3,700 hotel rooms, 550,000 square feet of convention and meeting space, as well as your your gaming, dining, retail, um, gym, and spas, and all that stuff. So what, what has been sitting there partially completed for the last decade will be completed 
by about the middle of next year. You know, when I see projects that aren't being finished, you know, sometimes you, you just assume that the contractor who had the project, you know, had some kind of difficulty, whether COVID crushed this one specifically, but, uh, you know, you know, cause it takes years to build these things. Right. So if it was unfinished six years ago, but then three years ago, you're three years into the project and COVID hits or whatever. And, you know, things go sideways. I wonder though, is this a situation where like the competing hotels and, and convention space around it, like try to block them from getting it done? It's like, mm. like the Westgate, like what if the Westgate was like, yeah, no, we don't want another game in town over here on this convention land. Right. And they, and they were out there just like knifing them. <laughs> man, dude, I, that's, that's a great theory. That's a great theory. I mean, Westgate looks like, man, I don't want a half a million square foot of convention hall right across the street when we just built the West, exactly. the West hall expansion project. Yeah. Exactly. And so for our new listeners, if you're not familiar, speculation is our favorite thing <laughs> on the show. So I'm absolutely speculating that, <laughs> that a major, multinational hotel is knifing another project <laughs> well if there's one hotel in las vegas that's going to stab somebody it's probably going to be the Westgate. <laughs> <laughs> yes i won't repeat yes. all the stories we have from the Westgate because we've told them on here a few times before but sorry Westgate, if you're listening <laughs> elvis made it great back back in the day yeah but, well th- uh, this podcast isn't going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back there as it pertains to the Westgate. they're going to be just fine without us so that's that's true but I, you know in, in i will play devil's advocate for a second when we were first staying there back in uh was it 2014 2015 it was it was horrible i didn't get, i don't think anybody had a room that didn't have cigarette burns you know, all over it. Right. And, but, uh, they, they like redid a bunch of the rooms in that hotel. Uh, I think the last time we were there, it was actually like, Oh, are are we in the right place? Like, is this, this, the same hotel and then you yeah. go down to the casino for you like oh yeah <laughs> still, still the same place but the rooms were like 10 times better when the new owners took it over a few years back they're stepping up in the world because i wasn't allowed to smoke a cigar there around the sports book so they're slowly yeah. coming along with the times i guess and they're moving know. moving away from being like uh the low-end like budget hard rock hotel and moving into the 21st century i like it yeah, you could yeah. smoke a cigar in where the table games were, where they're pumping the oxygen in. But uh, in the, they probably wouldn't let you smoke in the sports book, Joey, because they have that restaurant attached to it. That's probably why. Yeah, we'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get back into more speculation. Yeah, you guys want to, all right, so I'm just going to briefly uh, brush over the other six projects that were on this watch list because a couple of them are pretty cool. Uh, one of which is the new Buffalo Bills stadium. Did you guys know the Bills are getting a new stadium? Yep, and the greatest the greatest business minds in the world are NFL owners who privately hold these NFL teams but somehow get public tax dollars to build their stadiums. Yeah, yeah, yep. phenomenal. So the Bills and the NFL combined are going to put in 550 mil to this project. Erie County is putting in another 250, and the state of New York is putting in 600. They're doing that with the Titans here in Nashville, too. Titans are getting yeah. a new stadium, and Nashville's forking out. I don't know what the price, I don't know any of the numbers, but uh, Nashville's forking out a pretty hefty portion of that yeah. new stadium. But to Paul's point, it gets worse than this. I mean, the fact that the NFL and the Bills are almost splitting it is is pretty good in certain considerations because there are some stadiums that are being built where the county and the state 
pretty much foot at least 80% of it. This is mild compared to some other ones. I think the, uh, I don't know if you'd call it being devil's advocate or just what it needs to be called, but, you know, the the counties and the cities, the towns, the surrounding areas get a lot of business. You know, the, the Titans are the biggest game in town. Uh, and they generate a lot of business down there on Broadway. So I think uh, the Titans and the NFL probably came to, in Nashville's case, they probably came to Mayor Cooper or whoever, maybe in Davidson County, and said, hey, y'all are benefiting a pretty good bit from us being here. And you have all these other events that are held here. You have concerts. You have whatever else that, that's held at a stadium. So it's not like they're using it. What what's a how many home games do they have? Eight or nine throughout yeah, the season. It, it seems like every other every couple of years they keep adding games onto the schedule. So you you just wait. It'll be about as long as the NASCAR season. Yeah, they do that, and then they have concerts and they have everything else, and the city is just reaping the benefits. So yeah, I don't blame the NFL or uh, or the teams for coming to the city and say, hey, you guys are making money off of this. Uh, we'll pay this much. Y'all pay this much. And uh, y'all can hold events here for the rest of the year. Yeah, you got um, Las Vegas. I mean, go back to Vegas. They just built that new stadium for the Raiders out there. And that stadium, the construction costs were $1.4 billion with a B for the construction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the overall stadium itself was actually $2 billion was what it cost to do everything. But the construction was $1.4. The city of Las Vegas agreed that the residents would have to pay for 750 million of the 1.4 billion in construction costs but that would you know you don't have to do, the city doesn't have 750 million laying around so you have to tax everyone and you have to add there's actually when you book hotels in Vegas now there's uh, like an 88 cent tax per night on your room that goes back to the the Raiders or whoever for building that stadium so they can collect that money. Here's the here's a sad part though, is it's a seven hundred and fifty million dollar note that they're paying over thirty years. So it doesn't cost the taxpayers seven hundred fifty million because there's interest. Mm-hmm. It costs the taxpayers one point three five billion dollars. Right. Over the next, you know, 30, 30 years. So I guess what you got twenty five years left on the life of that Joker, and uh, more than a billion dollars that the taxpayers are going to be having to come up with. Hopefully, there's some people that are paying that tax where they can look at that stadium and be proud of it because it is the Death Star. It's probably one of the coolest buildings I've ever seen out there in Vegas. But it does look awesome. That giant sphere. I forget which casino or which place is building that giant sphere out there. That is legit the Death Star. I mean, it's big, <laughs> round, and black. Like the Death Star, that's the Death Star, and for all you Star Wars nerds, the the Raiders Stadium is going to be like Darth Vader's palace or whatever if you ever watch <laughs> Star Wars. Yeah, no, it's, it's a cool stadium for sure. One, th- All right, last thing on this Bills Stadium, and one of the newest features that they're putting in this stadium is uh, radiant heating in the floors, which seems like a pretty elementary idea, but how how do no other football stadiums have this? How do they not have radiant floor heating at Lambeau or Soldier Field or, I don't know, pick a northern climate? Yeah, I don't know. My buddy Jacob has it in his bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. 
Yeah, you got people down there where you live, Joey Bell. They need it in their driveway so they can get out when it ices like it did last night. I'm telling you, yeah, just to kind of go off topic here, my entire road and driveway is an ice skating rink, and my wife, Krista, couldn't go to work. Daycare is closed, so my house is full today. Yeah, I'm going to have to edit out some some children in the background today. Well, and uh, also for all the new listeners of the podcast, uh, Joey's Joey is absolutely the greatest at going off topic, so, you know, no worries here. It's, <laughs> we excel at that as well. All right, wrapping up, uh, JFK Airport Expansion Project is a $14.2 billion project. They're building a whole separate terminal and sprucing up a bunch of other ones they have. Um, Dallas-Fort Worth area, there's a Southeast Road Connector Project, $1.6 bill. BMW has a EV supplier plant going in in Florence, South Carolina. Amazon's building a bunch of data centers. How how is the Tesla Gigafactory in Nevada not on this list? It is. I didn't get there oh, yet. Sorry. That's the next one. There's a link to that. They they even got their own uh, they even got their own article about the Tesla Gigafactory. And then there's some like residential project in Southern California that I don't whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh Tesla's mega factory in Nevada, that's 3.6 billion. Um and that's where their EV semi trucks are going to come from. Yeah, and if uh you didn't listen to one of the recent episodes where we went through the EV semi trucks, uh we're not going to cover that again here, but mm-hmm. it is uh very strange that people think that's going to work. We'll see. You know, I don't want to look. Elon Musk has figured out a lot of things, so yeah. if he thinks this is going to work, then I'll I'll sit over here and watch it work. But right, you know, the basic math that we ran through on the on this program, it's sketch at best right now. Right, I'm not I'm not going to dispute the guy that figured out how to land a rocket uh, right back where it took off from, but if he's going to make these semi trucks, these battery powered semi trucks viable. On a day-to-day basis, uh, he knows some stuff that I don't know. So we'll just have to sit back and, and figure it out with him, I guess. Yeah, and we solicited a little bit of feedback on social media about the idea of uh, concrete trucks, you know, being electric. And our theory was that it's possible, you know, if you had a charging station there at the plant and, you know, they don't make uh, trips that are that long and so on and so forth. But judging from the feedback on social media, they have – very many doubts about that and i think one of the bigger ones was the amount of voltage it would take to turn those drums a drum full of concrete would absolutely drain a battery so they were pretty adamant about uh no electric concrete trucks yeah that's a good idea i mean i was i was thinking about the transit right just moving the truck from point a to point b at no point did I even consider the amount of power it would take to, to turn the concrete drum. And, and honestly, an electric motor, the amount of torque that they provide would be beneficial. However, like we talked about in that previous episode, with any electric motor, the more load you put on it, its efficiency and longevity drops dramatically and very quickly. So I think, I don't know, that's that's the underlying issue we have with, with most EV vehicles. As soon as you put a load on them, the, the range drops by at least two-thirds. But, fellas, that's what i got to talk about uh, regarding the industry today. Would you all come with? I've got one. It doesn't really get political. That's a great way se. to start. It's a great Sorry. way to start, Joe. <laughs> that's, he's, set, <laughs> he's setting it up. He's like, this isn't going to get political, but... 
Did y'all hear about them documents? <laughs> <laughs> Did you see the latest leaks? Speaking of concrete garages. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, this, uh, I came across this and it was just interesting to me. It's a Supreme Court decision uh, siding with a concrete company versus a union in regards to a driver uh, strike. And I think maybe it was Josh that covered this however many mm-hmm. months ago. From Seattle, uh, yeah. Yeah, so the situation was, I won't read the whole article, but basically the the uh, truck drivers walked off the job site with concrete still in the trucks, you know, right in the middle of the job. And the court decision came down to, well, is the concrete company liable? You know, because that concrete went bad, you know, after the 90-minute rule. So is the concrete company liable or is the union liable? And they kind of had to go through, you know, in, in most of every other part of the country, you know, if the concrete is in the drum for over 90 minutes, then yeah, the concrete company is liable for that. And I think in the article, the, uh, the court originally ruled in favor of the union, saying that, yeah, the concrete company is still liable for the concrete. Uh, but then they came back later and said that no. Representatives came forward and basically said, hey, you know, the, the drivers walked off the job site, they left the concrete in the drum, and we lost probably $100,000 that day because of that. So it was just uh, really interesting. I figured it would trigger a little bit of discussion among the three of us here on who, who's at fault, uh, what are your thoughts, and uh, do you think, do you think it could happen again in the in the future? Well, I think if you can prove that it was a staged protest by union employees and that they conspired together to 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 do an organized protest, then you can pin it back on on the union. If it's just a single rogue employee, then, you know, the the manufacturer has to take that one on the chin and reprimand him or her in, in other ways. You can argue that sometimes there's a lack of accountability there because when, when they band together, they feel like they're untouchable. And I've, I, I applaud the courts for trying to reverse that trend as, uh, as our long-term listeners kind of know how I feel about unions at times. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, it's interesting because uh, what happened in that case uh, that Joey's referencing with the Supreme Court is our the Supreme Court of the United States took this up because uh, after um, they ruled against uh, in favor of the unions uh, in the Washington uh, courts, they then went to the state, appealed to the state, and the state Washington states, you know, the highest level of the courts in the state, they actually dismissed the appeal. And so when the when the appeal was dismissed, the concrete companies took it uh, before the Supreme Court, who agreed to hear the case. So when the Supreme Court got their hands on it, they're in a kind of a tough spot because these types of things, this is not the first time that you've adjudicated a strike happens, uh, something at the company, whether it's a product, in this case it's concrete, gets spoiled. Uh, is that the... So who's liable for that? And it's actually it's almost always been ruled that the union workers are not liable for any product defects that happen uh, in relation to walking off during a strike. But in this case, the Supreme Court did not rule that the union was at fault. What they actually ruled is that this case uh, should be revived. And so they're leaning toward uh, favoring the concrete company, but they're actually sending it back down to the lower courts and telling the state of Washington, hey, 
you guys need to go and you know review this again because this this may be a different situation. And the reason why it's different this time than other times is because of destruction of property. So the union agrees that, along with Chief Justice Roberts in this case, by the way, is that it's one thing to spoil the milk, it's another thing to kill the cow. And in this case, the union bosses are arguing, the lawyers for the union are arguing that, yes, the milk spoiled, the concrete and the drum got hardened, but we didn't burn the plant down. You know, you know, we got to make sure we're staying in the lines of what's protected uh, in these union workers' striking ability. However, the concrete company saying, yeah, you may have uh, spoiled the milk, but we then had to chip that milk out of the concrete truck. And, you know, it causes damage to the trucks, causes damages to the job sites. You know, you cause cause da- you cause actual physical damage to property here. Um, and so it's a it's a weird case in the article from the NBC News that Joey's referencing here that concrete company says it did lose one hundred thousand dollars as a result of failing to fulfill a contract on the day of the strike. It also claims additional damages, but it's not listed in you know how much the additional damages are. You know, I think it, it's it's less about the money here. Right. It's got to be about making a point that you can't just walk off and then leave us with have you know a bunch of destroyed concrete mixer drums. Yeah, if you're gonna walk off, bring a truck back. Bring a truck back yeah. and empty it out first. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually gonna keep things in the realm of the courts as well. And this time, you know, I know on here I, I try to like fire Josh up because it's hilarious when he gets on these rants. But today I'm gonna talk about something that pisses me off, and I cannot stand frivolous lawsuits. They drive me crazy. Preach. I just don't understand like people's motivations in life. And this one makes me even more angry because the lawsuit is coming from the city. In particular, we're talking about the city of Winnipeg. Yes, our neighbors to the north are once again doing something that I can't wrap my head around. So in this instance, they built a new police headquarters like seven years ago in the city of Winnipeg. And the city complained that the contractors involved submitted a bunch of invoices to the city that the city then paid and then realized, well, you know, why did we pay all those invoices? Because they submitted stuff for work that was never done. So now the city, who apparently doesn't have any checks and balances on their uh, projects, whoever's managing that project is just paying every bill that comes in, not actually paying attention. And now the city wants to complain about it. And they go out and they say, hey, this is a problem. They've, uh, these contractors have defrauded the citizens of Winnipeg, and they need to be held accountable. So the Royal County Mounted Police, or whatever they're called, right, the RCMB, the big, the big dogs there, in uh, in Canada, did a five-year investigation into this case and came back in 2020 and said, we didn't find any wrongdoing, or at least they didn't charge anyone with wrongdoing in the five-year investigation. So what does the city of Winnipeg do? They sue them anyway. <laughs> they sue the people involved and say, we don't care what the police investigation found. We're coming after you anyway. You owe us money. And so all these, all these, I mean, tons of contractors are listed, by the way. Contractors, subcontractors are listed. And so, you know, they're having to deal with going to court and defending themselves after already not being charged from a five year investigation from this RCMB. Wait, wait, wait. wait. So, who's, so who's the prosecutor here? The city of Winnipeg is going after okay. these people who gotcha. have not been charged. 
Well, yeah, man, it's easier to go to court when you're using someone else's money to do it. Dude, unbelievable. So the reason this is in the news today is because the city of Winnipeg just had to drop charges against some of the people that it filed against. And, of course, they didn't say why they dropped charges, but the people came out and they're like, yeah, we didn't do anything wrong. They sued us, and we had all this documentation showing we did this work, we did that work, we billed you exactly for this, and you paid us exactly for that. Like, please leave us alone. So the city of Winnipeg, uh, you're on my last nerve right now, and I don't even care about your city. So, <laughs> Matter of fact, I hope that a countersuit comes out of all of this. <laughs> but we, we have friends uh, in Winnipeg. Actually, the, the lady who did like the photography for my wedding is from Winnipeg. We've got customers in Winnipeg. I like the people of Winnipeg that we know. The people we know from Winnipeg, we actually really like them, right? And so the city is doing those people we like a disservice by wasting those tax dollars to sue people that looks like might not have done anything wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can relate. I used to live in Baltimore. I got a lot of friends in Baltimore. I hate Baltimore. <laughs> and all Same. of the and, and every corrupt politician that's from Baltimore is partially the reason I don't live there anymore. So, yeah, two things can be true at the same time. Yeah, when I learned about the Baltimore rain tax, <laughs> you, know, you, get, you get taxed when it rains like that's unbelievable yeah my favorite my favorite is the rampant uh, police corruption that's actually famous uh in many tv documentaries but when i used to tell people i lived in baltimore they're like oh yeah i seen the wire but yeah it's all true every bit of it <laughs> <laughs> speaking of two things that can be true at the same time you can have a friend in the concrete industry a real advocate of the art if you will um, and he doesn't have to be in the concrete industry. That is today's guest. We have Ron Mackin on the show. Ron, actually the owner of Lightwave Laser. Uh, Lightwave Laser uh, actually is exactly what it sounds like. It's metal art, and they use CNC lasers to cut out metal patterns for you know decorative industrial pieces, um, among other things. However, Ron, as he will describe, is from California, and is his house survived. His in-law quarters did not. Um, so after the fire, the recent fires came through his property, he started looking at better ways to make residential housing, and of course, he landed on concrete. So he's a true advocate of the art, and he's done extensive research on the pros and cons of building stuff with concrete. Um, more specifically, residential housing, and uh, we get into the weeds with him. And for a guy that isn't, quote-unquote, in the industry, he knows his stuff. Yeah, you know, I think it's great that we can have people on this show who do come outside the industry with an outside perspective. And what was good about Ron is he didn't come in with any bias. He wasn't biased for or against 3D printing. He wasn't biased before, you know, for or against cast-in-place versus precast he went through as much as he could on the pros and cons the cost install time and just looked at everything he said what is the most optimal option to build a concrete home and when the concrete home is done it will have the properties to potentially stand up to these wildfires so it's really great uh, to hear his perspective on that and i hope everybody enjoys this interview yeah exactly so without any further ado here's ron mack and y'all enjoy All right, welcome in to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We are here on our interview portion of the show. Today, we have a guest who comes a little bit outside the world of concrete, but he has wedged his way in, Mr. Ron Mackin. Ron, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank, thanks for having me. I, uh, 
I really appreciate what you guys have done with the podcast. You know, you, you put a lot of great information out to the world and, and it's just super helpful. So thanks. I also wanted to thank you, Paul. I, I really appreciate your help on a technical side and also just your encouragement and support as I'm kind of moving forward with all this stuff. Yeah, no problem. And just for the audience's sake, uh, Ron and I connected. He found the podcast uh, in its early days, uh, reached out, w- was uh, very encouraging to us about our show, and he had questions about concrete mix designs. And some of that we're actually going to delve into here. And uh, so for those who aren't familiar with Ron, he uh, recently appeared on the Concrete Logic podcast, uh, a two-part episode. I encourage anyone uh, who has not heard Concrete Logic, check out their podcast. It's a little bit different from ours, but uh, Ron's episode was very informative. And so we're going to go over a little bit of that here. And then I got some different questions uh, that Seth over there did not ask. So we're going to get into a little bit of that. And so to start off with, Ron is not a concrete guy. He comes from a different world, but he became a concrete guy. Ron, why don't you tell people uh, what your background is and what the business is that you run now, and then how in the world concrete became something that was so important to you. Right, yeah. Uh, so my my day job is I'm the owner of Lightwave Laser, which we laser cut decorative metal and wood panels, uh, typically found in restaurants, hotels, casinos, and now senior living is really big for us. Um, and so we're in Northern California. So my journey with concrete started a little bit over five years ago. There was the Tubbs fire in Santa Rosa, which, uh, 5,300 homes burned down in two days, 22 people were killed. I live out in the country. Amazingly, my house survived, but my, my mother-in-law's granny unit burned down. And so after going through that experience, I, I was just really determined to rebuild in a affordable and resilient way. So I, I started off just kind of, uh, my background is partly um, industrial design, product design, that kind of stuff. So I essentially started thinking about homes from a design standpoint and pretty much, you know, started looking at, at anything I could find and no surprise to you guys, I ended up with concrete as the absolute best material to build an affordable disaster resistant house. So that's my journey. And, um, you know, I, I, it's been really great. I I have to say, I mean, the industry that I'm in, uh, with interior design and architecture, like people tend to not be that helpful. And I've just been blown away by how helpful people in the concrete world have been and you know even something like world of concrete i can go and take classes there and they're taught by you know complete experts so i just don't think that that is typical for a lot of industries no it's very interesting and i think part of the reason you get that support is because you're generally trying to do something that is better than what's been done before and there are a lot of concrete people that love to see things be done better and when concrete is the superior material that's only used a fraction of the time then it kind of hurts our heart (laughs) in this industry and so the 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 sector you're pointing at is it it was residential homes 
And for you, you, you found that concrete was superior to a stick-built house. Uh, t- t- why don't you educate the audience just a little bit on some of the research? I say some, I say some of because you did an incredible amount. So maybe hit the highlights for us on what you found in your research, why concrete is a superior building material for residential homes when it comes to durability against natural disasters. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, for about well, probably 300 plus years in the United States, we've been building homes primarily with wood. Wood has been abundant, um, relatively affordable, easy to work with, flexible. But, you know, the world is changing in terms of both what we expect from homes from a uh, energy efficiency standpoint and a resiliency standpoint. Resiliency, basically the definition of that is the ability for a home to withstand the threats that it would reasonably expect it to face. So for for big parts of the United States, hurricanes, flooding, and wildfires are an increasing threat. And that's one of the trends. Another trend too is that lumber, if you compare a two by four from a hundred years ago, it was, it, it's just a very different thing than the two by four that you could buy now. You'd be talking about an older growth wood with uh, more resins in there that are insect resistant. It was just thicker and stronger. And then if you compare concrete, a hundred years ago, that was just the very beginning of concrete. And concrete is in the last 30 years or so, just has become a, a completely different high-tech material, and, and most people don't get that yet. You guys obviously are in the middle of helping that happen, but people just don't get that concrete is such a different material now than it was, say, 30 years ago. So in terms of trends, you know, you've got wood that keeps on getting worse and concrete that keeps on getting better, and then our expectations for what houses need to withstand you know, it's, it's all heading toward that uh, more and more houses should be built out of concrete. And just as a little point of reference, in 2009, about 4% of new homes that were constructed were essentially um, concrete-based framing. And then by 2019, that had grown to 10%, so a two and a half times increase. Um, it dropped a little bit in 2020 and 2021, to 8%. I'm not totally sure why that happened. I'm sure it's partly pandemic related, labor related, maybe cost. And then something else too is that most of the increase in home construction out of concrete is happening in the South. And it's being driven by two primary factors. One is places like Florida have increased the building codes so that it's very difficult to build a regular stick frame house that's going to meet the wind requirements and that type of stuff. So concrete becomes a a more viable option. And and then the other factor that's happened in a lot of states is that insurance companies will give a credit to a more resilient house like a concrete house. So you might pay a little bit more up front, but then over time you're going to save on that insurance. You know, to me, I I would say like... the message is that more and more homes are going to be built with concrete in, in the future. And, you know, if we're at 10% now, I mean, I'm hoping we're at whatever, 40 or 50% a few decades from now. 
the whole industry hopes that <clears throat> we're at 40 or 50 percent. I was going to ask you when you were saying 10 percent of the homes, I was going to ask if you had a breakdown of how many of those were in Florida, because you cannot build uh, a house like the first story is they're almost all concrete masonry units that are grout filled CMUs. Almost every residential home in Florida is built like that with a stucco on top of masonry. And then the uh, insurance things you're talking about, we actually discussed that on a podcast one time. Uh, the state of Alabama does that uh, in the in the southern part of Alabama. They get dis- they get hit by hurricanes every year, and if you can get to like that top tier, uh, I forget what they call it, like diamond tier for some of these insurance companies, which is where uh, pretty much the entire house is made out of concrete and resistance to the hurricanes. They give you like a ten thousand dollar annual credit, and what in out the state of Alabama. Home insurance is a hundred dollars a month. It's so it's wow. like, I mean, the ten thousand dollar credit covers you for like ten years of home insurance payments or something crazy. You know, whatever the number is, it's absolutely bananas. The amount of savings they're going to give you because they're just assuming that there's going to be nothing wrong with that home. Yeah, I've heard that similar things are happening in Louisiana, and I know, like in Florida, I mean, there's many insurance companies that are at the risk of going into bankruptcy because of the the claims that they've had in in recent years so yeah but so let's so it's in florida the concrete homes are cmus grout filled cmus uh, but that's not what you're expounding on uh, you did a bunch of research not only that right. concrete you thought was the most resilient but you went into which types of concrete and which building methods uh, you thought were the best and could you just tell the folks here what you found yeah sure so the the process was uh for me that the criteria was it it had to be uh, more affordable and resilient uh so that was the first kind of big criteria so basically there were seven types of concrete homes that i took a look at cast in place um, there's precast panels which are pretty commonly used but they tend not to be less let more affordable you've got the expensive cranes and transport and lots of stuff. Concrete blocks, obviously the most commonly used. Uh, it's relatively simple and affordable, but it doesn't have, well, one is there's challenges with insulation and air tightness, that kind of moisture management, that kind of stuff. And you, you know, you just can't get the same strength in a, in a block type format. There's ICF, insulating con- concrete forms, which those are pretty popular. You essentially have an EPS foam on the inside and outside. And then you've got six or eight inches in the center that's a cast in place with rebar. It's used for a lot of basements, but also you can do the walls of a house with that. Another one is ICCF, which is like ICF, but instead of that being EPS foam, the, the, the problem with the EPS foam is that you have to put sheetrock on the inside and you have to put moisture barrier and some kind of, you know, siding or stucco or whatever on the exterior. With ICCF, that's where they take um, something like recycled wood or recycled EPS and they mix it with cement. So they get something that's insulating, but but more durable so that you can, uh, you can work with that more directly. Like you can, you don't have to do the same number of steps. Uh, I looked at 3D printing, which, you know, there's tons of information about right now and interest in, but when you get into it, I mean, 
who knows where 3D printing will end up, but it, it is nothing viable right now. It's, it, it's more expensive than traditional construction right now. And, it, you know, in many ways, they've kind of automated the fastest part of the process, which is essentially framing up a house. And then the one that I really ended up settling on is uh, called skip panels or structural concrete insulating panel. And what that is, is you've got uh, at least four inches VPS foam in the center. So that's your insulation. And then you have the wire mesh on the inside and outside. And then you have these welded truss elements that go through the foam that essentially create kind of an I-beam. So, and then you, you need two inches of concrete on the inside and outside of the wall. And it becomes an incredibly strong thing that is disaster resistant. You know, you can withstand over 200 mile an hour winds. If the entire house floods, you know, it's relatively easy to, to recondition it. It's not like you got to rip out sheetrock or deal with mold. Anyway, there's a, there's a whole series of benefits to it. And that's really where I ended up. Yeah, we've actually seen those made before. Joey, didn't weren't they making those in Nebraska? I don't remember that exactly. I remember we did a lot with Holocore and Precast out there. I don't remember that. Okay. Well, I'm thinking of a different company, but I know I've seen it because uh, I thought it was interesting seeing these concrete ice cream sandwiches floating around out there. You know, so it's interesting that Ron settles on that as his uh, concrete of choice is the – so, so, Ron, you're saying that was like the best performance or that was the most economical or when you looked at all the trade-offs, you said, you know, that's that was the best thing you found so far? Yeah, right. I kind of uh, skipped over some of that. Um, so, so one big advantage that it has is the simplicity of the overall wall assembly. You don't need sheetrock on the inside. You can, you can just paint the walls. You could apply... Uh, type of plaster you know there's a lot of different options for the interior of the walls and same thing on the exterior you could paint it you could do a stucco but but you just don't need the moisture barrier you don't need to add insulation so it's, it's a very simple number of steps it's using um, a little bit less concrete than ICF you've got you know essentially four inches overall versus ICF has typically six or eight but because of that separation and, and the way that an I-beam works, um, they, they get you know, a lot of strength out of that. And it's, it's less expensive than ICF. I mean, the, the, the cost of these skip panels is uh, under $7 a square foot. And you know, if you're applying only four inches of concrete, I mean, your, your, your cost really for building the shell of a house is pretty affordable. And you've, you've essentially simplified the process, like you can use the same panels for the roof. So you don't need a metal roof, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm using waterproof concrete, so you need like a rubberized finish, rub, basically a rubber paint. Uh, there's other options, but that's the most common. So you've got this simple wall assembly, and then you essentially eliminate many steps that are part of regular home construction. Ron, you answered a question that I had, and uh, it was if you were using these walls for just the exterior uh, portion of the house, and if uh, you were going to use these for interior as well, but it sounds like the interior could still be just your regular 
you know, two by four, two by six studs from the sounds of it. Yeah. Yeah. You've got three options. Um, you could do two by four fr- framing for the interior walls. You could do steel framing for interior walls. Um, or they have a different version of the panel where that's non-structural, where essentially you have two inches of foam and, and one inch of concrete on the inside and outside. So you end up with a four inch thick wall. Um, yeah. And it, I would say most commonly would be either a two by four framed or a steel framed because then it's easier to run um, electrical and, and plumbing in those interior walls. So I'm uh, a little bit unsure of why we need the foam. Are we just eliminating weight? Is that the point? So it has it has some insulation value, but mostly eliminating weight because I, I figured that just the solid concrete wall is going to do just as good with insulation and R values. Am I missing something? Yeah, no, you need the foam for insulation. Concrete has a value of around uh, R1, which means about one per inch of thickness. And EPS foam is an R of five per inch. So with four inches of foam, you've got you've got an R20 and then you get another you know four out of the concrete so you get an r24 wall and you don't have the thermal bridge bridging that would happen say with a, a regular stick frame house where the wood conducts more heat than the insulation um, and, yeah in terms of energy efficiency there's also two other factors that most people when they think of energy efficiency they're mostly thinking about the r value but uh, as the building science stuff has advanced they've really realize that air tightness is as important as the R value. That, that's a huge advantage with concrete because concrete is just naturally airtight, uh, where if you're building out of OSB and moisture barriers and all this stuff, it's really hard to make it airtight uh, and it requires more skill. And then the other advantage is the thermal mass. So uh, because you have that two inches of concrete on the interior of the building, before you're insulating foam, then when those walls and roof get up to temperature, it's, it tends to kind of maintain that temperature over time because you've got all that thermal mass. So that one is not as easily quantified in the normal kind of energy efficiency, but, but for people who have an experience of living in houses like this, they see it as a, as a big plus that it's just comfortable all the time and takes very little energy to heat or cool. Right. Uh, but as far as the construction method, so you you, out, you laid out several different types there of concrete uh, homes, different ways to build it, some of the advantages and disadvantages. Uh, but have you, are you familiar with how they build uh, the big box warehouses with tilt-up panels? Yeah. Has yeah. anybody looked into doing that for residential homes? Uh, where essentially they, they pour the, in fact, I mean, they use these same panels. I would say the largest use for them right now is for tilt up distribution type center warehouses. And so what, what they do there is they, they will basically lay the form down and then they'll, they'll pour the concrete on the ground like a slab. Um, and they can do the other side too. And then they do a big crane and, and tilt it up. So, you know, you definitely could build a residence that way, but, you know, I think having that, that crane is definitely not a common thing that's part of 
uh, house building and really like for, for using these skip panels for residential construction, you have a regular slab foundation and then there's rebar that comes up and that's, that's to really, you know, attach the walls to the foundation and standing up the panels is, is relatively easy. Yeah. What do you need? What do you need? Cause you're saying cranes not normal, but I'm thinking if you're going to put these skiff panels up, you're going to have something to hoist those up too. You know, they're light enough. A couple people can just pick them up. Um, I would say, you know, I guess, well, certainly anything one story, even two stories, I think you might, or, or you could do it with like a skip loader, but yeah, regular, you know, some of the panels that I have are like 11 feet tall. And I don't know exactly know the weight, but it's very easy for two people to, to move those around. Are you able to discuss anything about the mix design, or is that something that you kind of keep internally there? Because that that would that's something that would be really interesting to me. I, I'm happy to talk about that. You know, my my motivation with this is uh, there's there's like a business aspect to it, but but I I really believe that. The, the world needs more concrete homes and I'm, I'm happy to share information with anybody who contacts me. I mean, I'm hoping that 20 years from now, we're talking about all the homes that are being built out of concrete, hopefully with this system. Uh, yeah. So as far as mixed design, well, uh, one aspect we haven't talked about is that the normal way that people apply concrete to these skip panels is they use like a low velocity sprayer. So similar to shotcrete, but um, shotcrete is kind of like a fire hose when you know you need more of a garden hose. Um, these panels, I mean, a regular shotcrete setup, um, it, you could you could push the the panel uh, out of square, and then uh, rebound is a big issue. Uh, I mean, I'm sure if they were putting actagel in there, they would have less rebound but attaboy ron attaboy <laughs> hey, hey you got it that was well done that was well done but yeah we're we're actually familiar with the uh, low velocity sprayers as well um for uh anybody in the audience who hasn't seen those garden hose is actually kind of the right word it's kind of what it looks like until you get to the pistol uh there's two different types of grips there's a, a longer a longer one a longer gun and you'll see those a lot of times on guys that are doing like plaster on the sides of houses they might be up on a roof getting the second level of that roof and it, it looks more like a, 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 like a the AK forty seven version, and then you got the the nine millimeter version, which is a, you know a pistol. That's what they call it, is the pistol. And uh, you see that a lot in GFRC, so glass fiber reinforced concrete building. When they're building those panels, you'll see that pistol that uh, is handheld, can be operated uh, pretty much with one hand, and and even has the ability to feed the glass fibers and as a strand and chops up those strands into the mix. Uh, so yeah, interesting that uh, you're familiar with that because that that is a niche. That that I mean, you're really going niche when you're talking about uh, that type of uh, application process, Ron. Yeah, I mean, I I heard about one job where they built with skip panels, and uh, they they told me that thirty percent of the concrete ended up on the ground. They were having so much rebound, you know. So if you're trying to save money, I mean, that's not the way to do it, you know. <laughs> Plus, they when they use regular shotcrete stuff, they they have a big crew, you know, because you got these ready mix trucks coming in. They got to get get that stuff out of the truck and on the walls quickly. So they they might have a crew of twelve or something like that. Where if you have a low velocity sprayer, 
and if you're site mixing. So basically I started down that path and I, I have a low velocity sprayer and um, I had a lot of trouble getting consistent results with the mix. So the problem is that like on the one hand you have to you have to pump it through the hose and the the equipment that I have is not really high power. So you got to get it through the hose and then as soon as that concrete hits the wall you want it to be sticky, you know, and and so you can get good buildup. And the problem that I had is um, you know, I just couldn't get really consistent results. I think part of it had to do with the local sand that's available and, you know, all that type of stuff. No, Ron, you just got everybody's first lesson in concrete, which is how come it's different from load to load? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's how we keep QC managers on their toes (laughs) is is the differences in load, load to load. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in order for this to be widely adopted, you need people that don't know a lot about concrete to be able to get trained and learn how to do this. And so after, after my experience with that, I eventually decided, you know what, this is not a easy repeatable process. So I, I need to back up and think about other stuff. And so what I'm doing now is I've developed lightweight steel forms that are hanging on these skip panels. And then I'm pouring SCC concrete inside the forms. And uh, Paul got me started with the mixed design. And then, you know, of course, I had to tweak it based on what was going on. Uh, but but it, it was just night and day. Like, I, I mean, I had always kind of thought there was a certain kind of mystique to SCC concrete. And once I started working with it, I realized, like, this is so easy. Like, you, you can put a little bit more water in, a little bit less water in. You know, obviously, you're going to have an impact on strength. But, like, uh, there's a wide range where this mix works really easily. So that that's where I'm at now is uh, – and, and really, the concrete mix part was the, the easier than the forms. You know, I'm still – still kind of refining the forms, but I'm convinced this is the right way to go. The SEC part of this is interesting. Uh, The industry is very much scared of self-consolidating concrete. And the reason they're scared is what Jim Casilio says is we're all a bunch of inbred elephants, uh, meaning that we all talk to each other and we never forget. And that mostly has to do with things that didn't go well. And so the SEC concrete in the ready mix facilities can be very difficult to work with, Ron. I don't, I, but I would like to hear your experience. Are you batching on site? And then I can sort of play devil's advocate about what the challenges are in ready mix. So the local ready mix place that I'm working with, they've been, they've been pretty receptive as far as working with me on, on this SEC mix. And, uh, Basically, I'm providing them things like, you know, Actigel and a nylon fiber and, you know, other stuff. Um, so basically, I'm providing them with the admixture stuff and we've developed a, a mixed design. So maybe I've just gotten lucky, but so far my experience has been good with working with, with a local ready mix place. They're, they're relatively small, you know, more 
scaled for for a residential kind of thing that doesn't need thousands of cubic yards. What kind of uh, what kind of strength are you trying to get out of this mix? Um, so I would say like thirty five hundred minimum, but the, the numbers have been coming in higher than that. Partly just you know you you add the high range water reducer that you need as part of SCC uh, and. Like another principle too is this whole idea of robust design, which um, it originally started in Japan as a, a kind of a quality related uh, field of engineering. And the idea is that you're trying to get consistent outputs out of variable inputs. So the, the idea, like it started um, in post-World War II Japan, if you're trying to make say like a high quality resistor, uh, but the quality of the ceramic that you get varies tremendously from batch to batch. It's how do you design that product and design your manufacturing process so that you can get consistent results. So, uh, you know, I think of it as a really useful thing for the concrete industry because sand and aggregate is different everywhere. And then the, the people that are working with it, like, you know, you just have... There's just a lot of variables, but you're trying at the other end. So basically with my mix design, because I'm not using a ton of stuff and the cost of the concrete compared to the cost of building a house is relatively small. So, you know, I can put in a few thousand dollars worth of admixtures. And if it makes that concrete easier to work with and stronger and more consistent, it's absolutely worth it. So I, I've got everything in there. You know, I've got, I've got Actigel. I use uh, quarter-inch nylon fiber, carbon nanotubes, uh, and then waterproofing, and the high-range high range water reducer and a little bit of uh, air and training. So I, I got a bunch of stuff in there, but the thing is that it makes it so that it you know you get this really consistent, strong thing, and it, it's testing out at um, you know over 5,000 psi. And that higher, higher initial strength is also helpful because it's helpful to get those forms off quickly. So, you know, you need enough strength so that that concrete can support itself. Yeah, the uh, traditional SEC mixes that are coming out of ready-mix plants, they, they had two additives. They had a viscosity-modifying admixture in conjunction with uh, a high-range water-reducing additive. And the problem, as I see it, is that we have such a tendency to want to engineer these mixes to be as lean as humanly possible. And the SEC doesn't need that. SEC actually needs some robustness. It, SEC would benefit from multiple aggregate gradations and it benefits from powder. Don't care where you get the powder from. It really benefits from good particle packing, which is more easily obtainable in concrete for using multiple sands and multiple rocks. And it benefits from more powder. It just keeps everything together. The glue that keeps it all together. And when you strip all that away and you have a 57 stone and a sand and maybe your sand's not great and then you're trying to strip that powder down to you know 500 pounds in a, a mix that you want to be high strength and they load it up with the chemicals and boom you all of a sudden have a puddle and you're like well, i don't know what happened it's like well you're trying to you know you're trying to do something that mix wasn't meant to do and but in in the concrete sense when you start over engineering it, it starts getting super expensive and it's like, so nobody wanted to, the owners didn't want to buy it. it you know, they, you're like, oh, well, you don't need less people. And he's like, I'm not going to fire my whole team. 
<laughs> you know, just so that I can pay more for concrete. Like, get out of here. You know, it, it, a lot of times it was family. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to fire my cousins from, from the workforce because you want to sell me this high dollar concrete. So it's been, a, it's been a really difficult game of trying to show, hey, there's a lot of value here and also uh, we can make this consistently because, as you mentioned, Ron, you're trying to have a consistent output of, and all the vari- all the inputs, all the variables are all natural materials, and natural materials are going to have fluctuations as much as we wish they didn't. They're always going to have fluctuations. And so a game of concrete, making ready-mix concrete is, is a game of trying to adjust to that. And when you're, when you're making these SEC forms, you, you're saying you're, they're steel forms, which is good because you've you got to stand up to the hydraulic pressures of SEC. Are you doing anything on the inside of the steel forms? Because they make them now that you can put those rubber liners in there, and you can actually make the the outside of the concrete wall that you're pouring look like a stone facade or look like a wood facade. Are you thinking of anything along those lines right now? You know, maybe maybe someday down the road. Um, so we, we have this big uh, laser metal cutting machine, so uh, we, can, we can cut those forms, and then we have in, in-house powder coating. So I'm essentially just applying a powder uh, polyurethane powder coating. Yeah, so it's great. I get, I get to just make them all in house and and uh, get you know get these nice smooth walls for now. Something like that I think is possible. Jumping back to you know from what I can tell, if you compare the cost of concrete now to pre-pandemic, it's gone up you know over 20 percent, somewhere 20 25 percent. Does that sound about right to you guys? I know it varies from region. It's, it, yeah, it's about the re- not only is it about the region, but the two big drivers right now, the cement has gone through the roof. And then how far are you having to haul your sand? And so it's, it's really the, the trucking and the cement prices are just killing everybody right now. Right. And with those increased prices, I mean, what's happened to demand, to demand for concrete? It, I mean, look, I'd, lo- I'd love to tell you that it went down, but it everybody that we're talking to, when they, when you talk about oh there might be a recession coming they're like yeah okay fine like it, things are so overheated they're like it'd be nice to you know get Saturdays off for once so you know the people we're talking to aren't seeing a slowdown in in the business and it, that yet yet yeah not seeing it yet but that's part of the reason they're, they've been able to push these prices because they keep pushing these price increases and everybody just keeps taking it so until the industry pushes back you're not going to see any relief from that yeah. Right, right. So my my point is that concrete's such an amazing material that that even when these prices increase, people just keep on buying it. So there's this disconnect. You know, you've got the ready mix people who will scream over pennies, but when you come down to the people that are actually writing the check to pay for this stuff, you know, they've been able to absorb those cost increases and these projects are still going forward. I mean, I, I get that there's the economics. I mean, if you're in the ready mix business and, you know, you're competing with other people around town and, and you know, if yours is a dollar per yard cheaper, like that might be the difference between getting the job or losing it. But, you know, really, I mean, for consistency and strength and durability and long term life, I mean, you know, we should we should be we should be spending more on concrete. You know, we should be making better concrete that's going to last longer and is stronger and can withstand, you know, and, and is easier to work with. I mean, I, I will say like Actigel is completely amazing. Like any mix that I put that in is better with Actigel, you know, maybe you need it, maybe you don't, but like, it's always better, 
you know, I, there's other admixtures that I feel the same way about. And, you know, I, I'm just hoping that over time, somehow, you know, the people that are writing the checks will become aware of the benefits of paying a little bit more for concrete in the long run. We hope so too, Ron. <laughs> we hope to. so too. Uh, no, but, but thank you for saying that. Uh, we are obviously, we know, obviously we work for Actigel and, uh, and push that product, but we believe in it wholeheartedly. You know, our company, we manufacture it and, and sell it all over the world. And we, we agree. Same thing you said. We, we believe the same. I think it makes the best concrete. What, what we end up, what we actually do on our end is we actually try to push the price of our product as low as humanly possible. Like we're constantly researching new ways to manufacture the product, new ways to package the product. Is there anything we can do to move this product so that it actually costs the end user less money so that they be you know, as willing as humanly possible to, to use Actigel? Because it's our belief that when they put it in a concrete, they'll say, wow, that was, way, that was better, clearly better than what we used before. And what, what happens a lot of times, they'll say, oh, that's going to be my Cadillac mix. Uh, but if we can get the cost of our product lower, then it can be every mix. It doesn't have to just be the Cadillac mix. And, and so why are we doing that? And, and I, I, this is what I wanted my response to be to you, Ron, about the economics of ready mix and wanting to make everything as high quality as possible. It is so tough to do in a commodity-based business. And when everyone looks at what you have as a commodity, then it's it ends up being a numbers game. And so what does that look like in reality? The profit margins on an average ready-mix concrete company, the average company is less than 4% profit. And the high, of, high end of the industry is around 25% margin. And those are almost all consolidated in one region, uh, it's all in the Rocky Mountain region, so I don't know what I don't know what kind of magical numbers they're getting out there, but it's really really high. And you can go into places in the southeast United States that are like two percent margins, and the industry is, is less than five percent, and that that's not great. <laughs> that's that's not great. That's a re, that's restaurant margins, and so it actually is always interesting to me how many restaurants go out of business every year. It's a ton. Very few restaurants open and stay open. It's very very few. Uh, in relation to how many end up being open, how many stay open. But concrete's not really that. You open up a plant. That plant's there for a long time. So I don't know how they're, how they're making uh, making magic there. Maybe the restaurant business needs lessons from us in uh, in selling commodities. But, but Ron, that's where we end up being. So you end up trying to put extra things in there, carbon nanotubes, these other specialty admixtures. And next thing you know, you're not a dollar more uh, when you're doing a carbon nanotube. You're right. $10, $10 more or something. And you're like, was well, that really worth it? Well, it, it can be. It can be make or break. It's hard to go down a dollar or, or increase your cost on the the cost of goods sold for the ready mix producer and not pass that along. Uh, it it could be, you know, make or break on your business that quarter. So just just from the uh, devil's advocate standpoint, that's what those guys are dealing with on the ready mix side. Yeah. Well, maybe that's an advantage uh, in with concrete homes is that the cost of the concrete is a very small percentage of the, of the overall cost of building that house. So, you know, it is different than a, a parking garage or something where you're using, you know, a lot of concrete. Yeah. Hard, hard to have a $300 per cubic yard sidewalk, <laughs> but maybe, right. maybe you can get that cost absorbed a little easier in, you know, residential homes. That's a very interesting point. Yeah, well, especially since you're only talking about four inches of concrete thickness on the wall. 
So your, your cost per square foot is, you know, I, I think I'm at like, even with all these fancy admixtures, I'm at, I think about $3 per square foot for the cost of the concrete. So, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's totally worth it. I mean, how's that compared to the stick frame for a house? Do you know what the comparison numbers are? It still is more. Um, but as soon as you add in sheetrock and moisture barrier and all that type of stuff, it's less. So there's no reason that a concrete home shouldn't be cheaper than a stick built home. Uh, if the process for how you get the concrete on the walls is developed to the point where it's uh, simple and repeatable and, you know, pretty straightforward where you don't need people with decades of experience with working with concrete to do it. Right. And so my point of asking if you were doing the, uh, the rubber liners inside of your metal forms, the, re the reason I ask that is because if you can give a, a consumer a stone facade or a wood facade that you can then paint, as you mentioned, you were probably going to do anyway. Um, and if you can give them that rather than a, a straight sleek concrete exterior, then you've you've right away passed one of the hurdles that 3D concrete printing, which we agree on this show, we've said many times, has several hurdles. But one of the hurdles they have is the exterior of that home looks, I mean, I think it looks horrible, but it looks different. And people don't necessarily always love different. And if you can give them exterior of a home that you're building and it looks familiar, then I think you're already halfway there. And, you know, I think these rubber inserts, we've seen them. There's a lot of uh, precast plants that yeah. have them on their, on their jackets, their metal forms. Uh, they put them on the inside of their jackets, and they look really good. I mean, they look really, really good. I think it's something they could get these skiff panels, you know, up, up to the next level, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I, did, uh, I do have more information about companies that sell that rubber so that you make your own forms and everything that I, I plan on researching down the road. Yeah, I made, I made my own one time around a, uh, around a tree and, uh, and it, it's, it was way harder than I thought it was going to be oh, really? making a making, casting a form around that tree and trying to pour, pour that, uh, thing. Around. I'm sure I made it more difficult than it needed to be, but, uh, I hope, I hope life is easier for you when you have to go try and do that. Yeah. Well, with 3D printing, you know, you know, they're in trouble when they start trying to convince you that those lines are, are really beautiful and that you want to you want to keep them on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's funny. And we actually know some of the people that uh, do that stuff, uh, not personally, but as acquaintances. And they put Actigel into a lot of those formulations. So uh, real friendly with those guys. But I, I'm not afraid to tell them, like, hey, those those lines, you know, this isn't a, a soft serve ice cream machine. Like this is somebody's house. Like let's uh, let's let's make it look nice. And I think if you can make it look traditional, even better, right? And I, you know, what you're doing there might might have that opportunity, Ron. Yeah, no, I'm I'm super excited about it. And you know, I it's it's going along really well. Maybe I'm just an optimistic person, but I don't see any reason why it's not going to work. I mean, it's not going to work the first try, but I I'm very confident that this will end up being a less expensive, better way to build houses. Well, at the end of the day, you have the best thing on your side in this business, and that is that you have time. Your number one job, you're not, you're not waking up like, oh, I have a concrete company, and I need to make this work today. 
You're like, I have a laser cutting. We cut metal signs for different industries. Like, that's my business. And then while I'm doing that, I'm going to work on this other thing, and I'm going to get it to maturity. And I think a lot of times in this business, people don't have time. They need, they, need, they need now, they need instant gratification right now, or they're having to go to investors, or they're having to get bought out, whatever it is. And it just becomes it becomes a horrible cycle of them needing more money and needing more money. And eventually, they end up never making the thing that they desired to make. And you end up not seeing the change that we want to see. I think, Ron, you're in a position where that's not your case. And so right. you have time, and you can do this the right way. Yeah, and I can go through iterations, and it's pretty inexpensive. You know, I, I don't have a crew. Like, if, if I have problems and I'm scratching my head trying to figure out stuff, I don't have a crew of people that's costing who knows how much per hour that are waiting for this problem to be figured out. So, you know, that's something that I want to do is get all this stuff nailed down before, you know, I'm, I'm into having that crew standing there. Uh, it's just a better way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, man, I really appreciate you being here. We cannot let you go without asking you the signature question of the show. So, uh, so I have a, a, a different crazy story that's not concrete related. Is that okay? <laughs> Hit us with it. All right. So years ago, uh, we were moving uh, this engineering department from one building to another, and we had a bunch of big heavy equipment uh, big CNC router and things. And normally we had moved this stuff ourselves. Uh, we had experience, a group of people that were used to working together. Well, the CFO uh, hired a moving company. And, and basically he said that like, he didn't want us to, to spend time on this and, and we weren't qualified. So we hired these people and they were pulling this five or 6,000 pound piece of equipment down a hallway, kind of an access hallway. And I was like, this doesn't look good. They had, there was a guy along the side, the entire machine tipped over against the wall. And for a second, we thought this guy was like dead, that he had been like crushed. It turned out that his head went through the sheetrock. He happened to be between the two studs. If he was like, nine inches one way or the other he would have been dead but instead his head went through the sheetrock he was fine and and they called it a day and walked away nobody got hurt wow that's a good one yeah that's pretty that's pretty good wow really glad that guy's okay holy smokes i'd have left the whole sheetrock yeah yeah <laughs> you know carl's head was here Kudos to cheap sheetrock. <laughs> <laughs> That's not FR rated sheetrock. Well, the, the one time it's a good thing that the studs were, you know, 24 inches apart instead right, of 18 right. inches. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, man. Appreciate that. Joey, did you have anything else for Ron before we let him go? Nah, nothing else. Uh, Ron, really appreciate you being here. It was uh, interesting uh, to hear about the process and the mix and everything like that. Thanks for answering all of our questions. Yeah, no, thank you. Ron, thanks again, man, for coming on, educating the world about concrete houses, uh, all the different methods, and what you found through your research to be the absolute best thing. Wish the best for you, man. Stay in touch, all right? Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, I'm happy to, to talk with anybody who's interested. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Yep. See you, Ron. All right. That's it, and that's all. 
One final thanks to Ron for all the insight into uh, what could very quite possibly be a, a very innovative and groundbreaking way to push the residential housing industry forward for the concrete industry as a whole. Um, and we're certainly interested and in, we'll be keeping an eye on Ron's progress and might even have him back on the show to give us an update as he progresses through uh, his process. Um, as always, hit us up on social media. Always keep a lookout on our Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn pages as we're updating those daily with clips from previous shows and teasers for upcoming shows. Um, also, keep a lookout for uh, all of the content that we're going to be posting as we begin to post weekly on Tuesdays with uh, single segments about certain topics that are hot-button topics in the industry. And then we'll also be bringing our uh, full-length guest interview podcast episodes. Uh, we'll, we'll keep those coming as well. But uh, we're going to try to push out some more content for you guys. Uh, as Paul said at the beginning of the episode, we have uh, plenty of new listeners and our downloads have, have really skyrocketed, so we certainly appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, make sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating. Tell a friend about us and tell them that they can get uh, this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Just go on there and search Add 10 Gallons, uh, and you'll be sure to find us. So until next time, y'all be good. <laughs>